Welcome to season two of Non-Fic Pod. Sadly, at the moment, it's with Burn and not Cod, because Cod is away on a writing retreat, but I am joined by some fantastic guests. I'm going to start with a recording that we made a very long time ago, actually, uh, and have been saving for the big start to this new season, and that's speaking to Dr Emily Mayhew about her book, Four Horsemen. is a military medical historian and is the historian in residence at the Department of Bioengineering and a research fellow in the Division of Surgery within the Department of Surgery and Cancer, both at Imperial College London. Dr Mayhew wrote her Wounded Trilogy, a series of books detailing medicine, conflict and recovery. Her latest book, Four Horsemen, looks at those extraordinary individuals and collaborations that are working to hold the line against war, pestilence, famine and death. Welcome, Dr. Mayhew. Thank you very much for having me. So your book contains some incredibly fascinating microbiology. As a military historian, you talk about the ways that microbiology is essentially a foot soldier of each of the, of the horsemen. Uh, what should we know about these minuscule but mighty threats? Well, I think we should know that they're there, um, but also, and I think we do, I think every, if anybody hasn't realised that there's a, there are bacterial problems and viral, real significant viral threats, but also that they have superpowers. And I think that was the thing that I wanted to emphasise most in my chapter on the horseman that brings pestilence. Uh, that the, there are the obvious things like specific diseases, specific viruses. But the thing that are, terrifies me the most of all, and which I think challenges us and why we need collaborations, and, I, and I'm really delighted that you've, you've drawn attention to that early on, is that it's the superpowers of individual viruses and bacteria, how they operate, how they learn to be better, to eat better, to reproduce more quickly, to be tenacious against whatever we bring to bear. It's their superpowers that are the things that in many ways, in most ways, are the most interesting. Yeah, and when you mentioned the superpowers and the ability for, for example, uh, bacteria to keep learning within the family, uh, that astounded me. I was particularly interested in what you write about biofilms and how important biofilms have been on Earth way before us upstart mammals showed up, but also how now learning to live with those is, is problematic. So the, the biofilm is, it is, it's never just one bacterium that's the problem, or even the scattering of bacterium. It's the fact that a really long time ago, when the planet looked more like Mars, when it was a, a much less pleasant place to be, this species, this tiny microbiological species, worked out that the best way to deal with it was to live communally and to move from the exterior to the interior based on need, and that there is indeed strength and real power in numbers. So so again, this is less about what that bacteria is called and more about the means by which it survives. And when I started to look at really the history of this and, and some of the most fascinating reading and complicated reading that I did was on evolutionary bacteriologists, people who look at this stuff going way, way back. Uh, before it, there was anything else, how long they've had to learn 
how to live like this, how to survive. And the upstart puny humans who come against them now, this is a relatively short span of time. Um, and they'll take a long view. One of the things that really helped me was the Perseverance lander going to Mars because they're going, I think, to look for fungi. They're going to look for evidence of microbiological life. And so suddenly that's, it's become a lot easier to explain to people. But when our planet was hot and the temperature was, was wrong for anything that had legs, uh, there were things that lived there and leave behind fossil traces. So this has been really good for anybody raising money to go and look for fossils in, de in deserts, for, um, for back, micro, back, back, microbiological fossil, fossils in deserts, and really good for me when I come to try and explain this. These are complex organisms that live communally and have lived and survived and thrived for a very, very long time. So we need to be braced for impact. You mentioned Mars, and actually there's a one of the conclusions they drew from reading your book one of the many because it's a phenomenal book is the fact that we are much more likely to have potatoes on mars than we are to have bananas on earth by the end of this century is that is that fair to say i think that's really fair to say i think i i think it is i remember when when the the um publishers were doing the book uh, the panels on for the book cover and they talked about the potato banana comparison and i actually hadn't drawn that but they both they both figure in the book Bananas are under tremendous threat, and I don't see a way for us to save the banana. It will go the way of the dodo, and it will just be something artificial. That that horrible. I talk about there's a when I was a child. I don't know if they still exist, but you get horrible sort of banana shaped sweets that were rubbery, and they had synthetic banana flavour. That's and right. Yes, the spongy ones. The spongy yeah. ones, and I think that may be all that we're left with because the banana uh, plant isn't a particularly it's a bit like a panda it it, it only it, it doesn't thrive well it reproduces well it doesn't reproduce we have to effectively clone it it catches diseases and it spreads diseases and the kind of diseases that it, it spreads diseases to other bananas and the kind of diseases that it gets mean that way after it's died the disease will hang around the fungi that threatens it will lie around in the in the field in the banana fields for 30 years and farmers will forgot that they had a banana crop that failed plant another banana crop and that too will disappear yeah. so it isn't just me it's it's the professors of banana husbandry all over the world are really concerned about this but on the other hand we have this extraordinary plant the potato which learned to evolve and grow up a very high mountain with very thin air in very cold temperatures um, it's it's adapting to climate change and we've learned that we can grow it in some really difficult, arid, uh, salty soil places. So one of the most fascinating things that I discovered was that was a, a joint project between NASA and the, Center, the International Centre for Potato Studies. And they grew a variety of vegetables in conditions as close to Mars as we can get. The gravity is a little difficult to simulate, but they can do it. They can do it with the lack of, with the carbon dioxide, the chemical balance of the air. And the only thing that grew, no beans, no carrots, the only thing that would grow is potatoes. And they did grow. That film with Matt Damon was right. They would grow. 
Um, and they t they are really tenacious. They clung on and they went on growing. And you can go on YouTube and search for potatoes on Mars or read about it in, in The Four Horsemen. But I think the potato represents hope on our planet like very few other objects. And sadly, not the banana. Not the banana. Not Certainly the banana. not the Cavendish clones that we all see in the supermarket. Absolutely. And, and if you think about the supply chain, just just there's, there are whole industries dedicated to shipping bananas around the world because it's such a popular fruit. And so it isn't just banana farmers who will adapt. We had this we had an issue with with um, uh, coffee and tea in the 19th century where we very nearly lost our coffee growing capability. Uh, and it was replaced with tea plants, which get different diseases. So that was fun. And coffee. Coffee isn't, you know, I, again, I don't really like, I, I haven't paid much attention to this because I don't really drink coffee. So I'm less bothered about this. But the, the supply chains and the sales, uh, the, the, the sales involvement with bananas is, is really, this is a significant number of people across the world, not to mention the smoothie manufacturers. Where would they be without the banana? Yes, um, it is the sort of bulking smoothing agent. We're all going to end up drinking avocado smoothies. Oh, I know, and, and and a potato doesn't work at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I do. I I've, I know people who put mash in in uh, smoothies, but it just it makes it thick, but it makes it not pleasant. Ugh. Yeah, I'm I'm having a reaction to that. It's not, so, yeah, it's not a good one, is it? It's not a good one. No, it's not a good one. Um, and and it, the, the the banana issue is I, I I flagged up the banana because I wanted people to understand the, another element of the microbiological world. And this it's this idea not of the bacteriological diseases, but the fungal diseases that threaten us. Fungi's had some really great press lately. And unquestionably, there is some, fungi does some wonderful stuff. It does kimchi and beer and all that other stuff. And a lot of it wants to help us. But a section of it really doesn't care about us. And it yes. really likes our bananas. Yeah. And in the wrong place, or certainly with the wrong kind of potato, there are fungi that have wiped out entire crops because potatoes didn't start here in northern Europe, did they? Where did they start? That's right. They started up a mountain uh, in the Andes. They started in, in on little tiny terraced fields um, created by, by the local human beings. They were a wild plant and then they were gradually cultivated in the worst of circumstances. There's very little water. It's very cold. The air is thin. The sun is, is strong. And they were cultivated and brought to being a major foodstuff. Well, when we brought them to Europe, uh, we don't have those issues. We're generally just above sea level. We're warm. Our soil is warm. We have lots of rain. And, all, and, the, and the fungi that the potatoes brought with them, and we're pretty sure that it is the fungi that, that potatoes brought with them. And in fact, they were very grateful. They stowed away on the ships that brought the potato plants. And there was nothing that they had any problems with when they were planted first in Holland. And then within six months uh, in, in, 18, in the 1850s, it spread to Ireland. And we know the catastrophe that a single fungal blight can inflict. Demographically, Ireland has never truly recovered. It, it not only killed hundreds of thousands, I think a million people, a million people were forced to emigrate. So there's significant displacement. And it's a microbiological enemy that is at the heart of it. Yeah. And you talked in the book about, sorry, God, I, I, I can't stick to my questions because it's all too fascinating. Thank um, you. So you, you mentioned about uh, bringing them to Ireland. Oh, yes. 
And the reason we know about this, about exactly what's happening in the mid-1800s, is because of the diligent data capture work by people. So the people who hold the line are not just the ones on the front line. There are, they are the ones that are capturing this information for future generations. Can you tell us how they went about that? Well, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons that I have an odd job. Um, uh, I'm a historian in residence in the Department of Bioengineering. And I spend a lot of time saying to my colleagues who think they're on the cutting edge that the cutting edge goes all the way back through history. Um, and one of them said to me the other day, you speak olden days. And it's like, that's right. That's what I do. I speak. It's, that's my best language is olden days. And, and nowhere is this better illustrated than in 1850 and the Irish potato famine. The scientific community was was in absolute crisis because they simply weren't able to understand what this was and what they thought it was where where the potatoes were rotting was that they already had a disease that had killed them and the rot was a secondary effect so they treated it it's it's actually a very similar case to the the great flu pandemic in 1919 we thought it was a bacterial illness uh, not of, we didn't really understand the distinctions between bacteria and viruses at that point. So we were treating for a, a respiratory bacterial infection. It was a completely almost pointless thing to do. And it's one of those things that we expect today that the science is keeping pace with us step by step, hoofbeat by hoofbeat, that our scientists are keeping pace, that there's nothing left for us to discover and that they will be right. And what going back to somewhere like the Irish potato famine tells us is that sometimes we won't know. Sometimes the really big scientific discoveries are going to be 50 or even a, a, a hundred years ahead of us. But in the meantime, it's every bit as important as the now. Uh, and so what they did, sorry, it's a long answer to your question. Great what they answer. did was they pressed uh, potato leaves, they pressed potato samples, they pressed potato flowers, and they pressed a clean leaf, and they pressed leaves that were carrying the marks of the fungus. And they pressed them everywhere in the world. They went and collected them from the Andes. They collected them in Russia. They collected them in Canada, in North America, in, in the Netherlands, in France. But really importantly, they collected them in Ireland. And they pressed them and they, it, with blotting paper um, and they labeled them and dated them and put as much information as they needed. And then they put them in botanical gardens collections. And really nearly, I think it was in, in 2010, around early in the 21st century, people went, scientists went back to those pressings and they found that not only were they really clear, you could see where the leaf was green and the leaf was, was rotted, that they could extract DNA from those samples. There were 88 samples worldwide where they could extract DNA and, and they could test the DNA. And what they found was that all of these potatoes going back to 1850 and still now have the same uh, fungal attacker, um, Phytophora infestans, really boring name, but it's the same fungus. It, it's adapted a little tiny bit. We, we know about variants now. It's the same kind of deft little changes that fungi make at the genetic level so that they can go on eating potatoes. And so we have 150 year old pressings that can still provide us with DNA that finally enable us to answer that question. So I think it's one of the lessons that I'm taking from today when I'm thinking about what's happening today. Well, there are two lessons. The first one is we don't have all the science, so we don't have all the answers. But what we do need to do is all the analysis and really good storage, um, mm. because later on someone is going to find that out. I was really surprised by just how much data gathering is done 
but when you explain the what happens when that data gathering isn't done it, it becomes very apparent why it's so so important and you talk about the failures at the outbreak of the war in Mosul as well and the lack of preparedness for the casualties that would that would be seen there what has been learned since then about learning from the past and preparing for the future I really hope it's been learned. The problem is we, we like our, our science to be done quickly and dramatically. One of the things that I talk about is the history of antibiotics, which was like magic. You know, in a decade, we have something that absolutely transforms medical care in the world. And we are coming to the end of that phase now. The stuff that is much less exciting is the stuff that is less likely to engage the public and less likely to attract the research funds. But it's grinding out the reports. It's collecting the data, collecting the data really well and storing it really well, preferably on some kind of data file that will last. You know, that when we're not using or using Macs anymore, nobody pulls out a hard drive and says, oh, my God, I can't access this, these emetimological studies of cholera in, in Yemen in, in 2020. Um, so we have to be thoughtful about that but it's boring that when you do well I don't think it's boring I think it's super fascinating I think a good a well-written report I would say in the book a well-written report you can really whack a horseman on the nose with a well rolled up well-written report but it's they're long uh, people often don't read more than the executive summaries but information well gathered well analyzed and well stored was as as important as the scientific eureka moments. They always need to be backed up with the studies. I, I am concerned that the history of coronavirus is going to be about the history of the vaccination. And what it's really going to be is being really sure about the data we have, the epidemiological data, um, the, the demographics of transmission, and all of those things which are going to be much less interesting than a magic vaccination. So the, my answer is, what, I, I don't know if we've learned from history. I really hope we have. And it's why I consistently put in, in Four Horsemen that the, the data gathering, the epidemiology, the reports that are written and written really well, the resources that are here for anyone, for a general, someone who's generally interested or someone who's starting out on their research career. Because all too often we stop being able to get at that. I was really fascinated by the Global Antibiotic R&D Partnership, which is this collaboration of researchers. And I was looking at the, the team in, is it, am I pronouncing it right if I said Khalifi Hospital? Khalifi Hospital, that's right, yes. And the team that's looking at juvenile sepsis. Can you talk a bit about what they're doing? People are talking about AI a lot, and they're talking about it in big social terms. But one of the biggest problems that we have with antibiotic resistance is that people don't really distinguish the patient cohorts that it affects, and it affects children worst of all. Globally, children are the most vulnerable to anti, um, um, antimicrobial resistance, and particularly through neonatal or juvenile sepsis. We, I think we lose 2 million children a year to neonatal sepsis. And this, again, goes back to your question about data gathering, about, about finding solutions in reports. We have really very little information, solid an analysis on, on neonatal and juvenile sepsis, because people think it's too difficult to gather data on children. Um, when you go to and present at a university and say, I'd like to get a thousand children, and I'd like to... I'd like to do some, you know, some very simple tests on them and look, look at the information. Getting consents is tricky. You have to get their parents' consents or their, their carers' consent. And all of that is difficult. And generally, it puts people off doing it. And so people haven't done it. 
But in the the Khalifi study, which is led out of Kenya by by the wonderful Guard P um, Antibiotic Research Institute, um, and it, and it's all around the world. We have a branch of it in in St George's in Tooting, and and they're, and they're expanding the research right now. But in Kenya, they went and found three and a half thousand children. Uh, and that's three and a half thousand families where they sat them down and said, will you do this study with us? Uh, can we come and ask you questions as your child is being treated, as your child is recovering, hopefully as your child is recovering? And so moments that are some of the most difficult moments for parents of all, of all that the researchers were brave enough to go in and say, we're doing a study. It's going to be so important. It won't necessarily have an effect on your child, but it will mean that far fewer parents will have to be in the position that you will be in now. And they got three and a half thousand people to say yes. And I think it's the most important three and a half thousand people in the world. The Khalifi study tells us that it is possible to do really big studies in what are generally considered to be really difficult populations. And that if you can do that and you are tenacious enough and compassionate and dedicated enough, then the rest of the world will benefit. It is so beautiful, the the willingness of those families to offer up their experiences for us to learn from means that the way that they've been approached by this team of researchers and, and medics must have been incredibly sensitive. Um, yeah, I've done my fair share of study recruitment and I can't imagine doing it in those circumstances. Exactly. And it was one of the things I, that's kind of my job. I, I can I can uh, translate the, the, the report when it's eventually published. But what I really wanted to do was highlight the steps whereby they arrive at those research uh, at, at those research results and particularly the steps that people might not be thinking about. So I put the three and a half thousand children and their parents in the line against the horsemen because that is a really strong, strong part of the line. We really now understand this need for paediatric specific antibiotics. We did not understand this before GARDP and the Khalifi study, but we do now. And whenever anybody talks about antimicrobial resistance, the first thing you should say to them is, of course, you know there's a very significant distinction between the AMR problems of adult population and the child population. And they will go, uh, 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 and you'll feel a little bit superior. But it is. It's really important when we, we we talk when we talk about AI, and we need to make sure that this is reflecting of the the planetary diversity. Quite often, that's a strand of diversity that we forget about. It works for adults. Does it work for children? Um, and because if you're just planning a, an antibiotic that works for anybody who's who's past puberty, who's over eighteen, then you have an in, the, the population most at need who is being ignored. Yeah, and way beyond humanity there are creatures in the world i i have new appreciation for llamas bats and cicadas uh, particularly the cicada wing please tell me how these creatures are potentially going to inspire new ways of adding to the arsenal so they won't replace antibiotics but adding to our fight against bacteria well, I, I, I was starting to read a lot about zoonosis and this idea that we get bacteria from, from animals. And it seems to be very one way and very anti-animal. Uh, you know, whenever they say we get this from bats, uh, the, my real concern is there is a bat population that is that is seriously under threat. Cat, my cat has just pushed the door open. I'm sorry, I'm just going to close it. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're talking animals. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I was... 
Sorry. I was super lined up and quiet, and then she can. I forgot she can do the door handle. Um, yes, obviously, heard us talking about zoonosis, and was like, "Yes, I have." Yes, these. I have. I have these. Maybe I'll scratch you, and you'll get them. Um, cicadas come in in a in a slightly different category. In that, cicada wings are some of the most extraordinary things on earth, and they are effectively naturally they've naturally evolved to be an antibacterial surface. They're so fine. They're like a the finest stained glass window that you could see on one of those churches that people build when they and they put it through the eye of a needle. They can't afford, in order for them to fly and communicate and do all the other things they do with their wings, fascinating wing things, um, they need to have no weight on their wings at all, not even the weight of bacteria. So the surface of the cicada wing has evolved to essentially be an unfriendly surface. It has a, a particular structure to it that when bacteria settle there, they, they don't build a biofilm. They don't say, well, I can, I can live here. That's fine. I can, I can multiply and we'll see how we go. They say immediately, I don't want to be here. I'm off. I'm going to find another insect to settle on. And because we've got great kit now, we can have a really good look at the cicada wing surface and see if we can use nanotechnology to mimic the structure of their wing and, and, and generate a material that we might be able to use in our hospitals so that we're not using antibiotics to kill bacteria, that we're making the hospital a place where bacteria are less likely to want to live because right now they really like hospitals. Uh, and so looking at and, and again, it comes back to this idea of, of collective action, of, of, of coalitions. Uh, it, we're not just going to solve the problem of antimicrobial resistance by getting new medications or repurposing other medications or everybody being really good about taking their antibiotics. We also need to think along different lines and we need to get to uh, really understanding the cicada wing to being able to use the nanotechnology that we already have, nanotechnological manufacturing processes. And then on really key surfaces like hospital handrails, which are always cleaned, but always infected in intensive care units. If a hospital handrail is simply a place that bacteria doesn't want to live on, that is a major step forward for the person in the bed holding onto the handrail. Mm. I was also horrified by hospital plumbing and, and yearning to replace it all with copper. And, and I hadn't really thought about it until somebody showed me one of those pipes, the, 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 the pipes that with the ridges in them, which are really cheap and really bendy. And you, could, you don't have to think very hard to think impossible to get clean. Um, these are naturally friendly surfaces for bacteria. And there ha I've seen an image of a, a copper hospital room all copper, which would it is indeed very sterile. It is also very weird. It's a bit like being asked to have a drink out of a copper goblet. There's something quite weird about it. So copper is a solution, but perhaps only in very, very small areas. If we can, if we can manufacture a plastic that's actually a cicada wing or shark skin, similarly is similarly anti naturally antibacterial, that will be less pleasant and generally less weird. And of course, copper is is um, ecology. It, it, it's environmentally, um, it's a dirty uh, product to mine. So, so there are, there are reasons why we haven't gone down the all copper hospital ward, mostly the yuck reason, <laughs> the inherent yuckiness of it. But a lot of it is, is, is the environmental costs of, of, of digging up metal. I just want to say, as a fellow uh, person who loves a good footnote, it is beautifully footnoted and beautifully referenced. How does it feel to have the, the ability and indeed the privilege to weave together these disparate threads and bring this 
treasure trove of research. Firstly, I think I, I hope other people notice that I footnoted it, um, but I, they generally don't. Um, but thank you so much. That may be the nicest thing anyone is going to say to me in the, in the process of, 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 of bringing this book out there. Um, it was it was a joy. The joy for me is well, there are two joys. The first thing is that I believe in the job I have at Imperial. I think that anthropologists and ethnographers and historians belong in science departments because I think we bring a perspective that people don't have. We have the time to think probably strategically about what's being done and that we we add a lot of value to the department. And I'm still in my department, so I, I must be adding value. The, the real joy for me is when you sit at Imperial and you have Imperial at the end of your email address, people take your call and they come and see you. And meeting, I, I, didn't, I didn't include all of the people, um, but meeting people like Asmita Chirani, who has this extraordinary multidisciplinary approach to how we're going to tackle the problems of antimicrobial resistance. Being in a place like Imperial, having the academic infrastructure that I had, that means I do proper footnotes you know I sit there footnoting as I go along it's, it's what I think it's one of the hardest things for people who come to science writing from outside the academic the academic institution is as you said I always say footnotes as you go along and they're like oh I haven't bothered and so, oh. but being able to meet people uh within I mean I, I wouldn't have met Ismita unless I'd looked for her I just could go on the imperial database and put in my keywords and dealing with people who are doing this work, incredibly difficult, detailed science, and their concern with humanity and their concern and their compassion and their dedication to getting this right is, 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 is as, as um, equivalent as their scientific expertise. And that was just a joy. And their patience, because I used to ring up and go, oh, can I ask you just a question about a Cinderbacter? And they'd go, yes, or another question about a Cinderbacter. <laughs> Um, and so they were very patient and they got what I was doing, but it was much easier to do it from within Imperial. So I would always say to people, if, if you have the ability to have a relationship with an academic institution, even if you're just coming in once a week, that works very well in terms of translating and interpreting what they do. When you can establish that you are a, you know, you're a serious analyst, you're a serious writer, I have generally found that they are incredibly keen to talk to people because this is the one thing that they don't have access to, that scientists don't have access to. They write for journals and they're well aware of the limitations that that places on the reception of their work. And they're always happy to meet someone who might help with that process. So I wouldn't hold back, but I can't lie to you, it's jolly handy to have a university email address. And I think it's something that people who haven't worked within research, whether that's science, history anthropology don't necessarily get is quite how intensely passionate people are about their research and want to talk about it exactly i mean i, I can't think of anyone that i that i didn't talk to, that, uh, that i contacted who said no this isn't for me thank you very much even the wonderful morris tibblebintz who founded humanitarian forensic action has really transformed the way we think about death uh, in, 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 and, and the particular context of death when when life is very complicated and i remember he said I, he told me a time that i could talk to him and he sat in the hall of the international committee of the red cross hq in geneva for two and a half hours and he and he, he moved occasionally because the signal went and he just talked about his work and I scribbled notes down and I wasn't sure he was going to want to do that but in fact as you say people do want to particularly I think they find we think that that leap from from our understand a general understanding of of 
scientific research is difficult. They think that their leap from science to general understanding is much more difficult. So yeah. they're always happy to have anyone who holds their hand through that process. Yeah. Yeah. Bridging that gap is one of the things that I enjoy most about this job. <laughs> My agent always says, calls me Emily the Explainer, and exact, that's exactly right. You know, my PhD student is using your book because, because it's got that scientific grounding, but, but we, we're practised in saying, how do we take this a step forward? How do we make this, how do we make this something that people can process? Yeah, and nothing makes me happier than knowing that someone's going, oh, someone's already done the literature review for me. Exactly, <laughs> in alphabetical order. <laughs> oh, that does make me really happy. Yes, it, and, you know, yeah, I, speaking of libraries and experimental sites, this I I I'm still actually slightly shook and I'm grieving about what happened to the Moray experimental site. So going back to the potatoes, it, it, so the Moray experimental site is is just an I, and I don't have a picture of it, which I'm very sorry because I only have black and white pictures and in black and white it just didn't really look like anything. But people can look it up. So I think it's a, it's in the 14th century. The Incas uh, in what is now Peru built what was basically an agricultural experimental station and they built it and it looks like a, it looks like one of those roman amphitheaters it's got it's got terraces down to a central staged area and what we now know is that they planted it they weren't going for mars although you never know with the incas because they were pretty clever um <laughs> They did um, like astronomy, so yeah. They did really like astronomy, and and you know we don't have a great deal from them. The Spaniards destroyed almost all of it. Um, but and what they did was they grew various types of of, um, of agricultural crops there to see what how they would grow at at, at, at various altitudes, what kind of water they needed, uh, and and it's it is an, the earliest kind of experiment agricultural or experimental site that we know about. It's, I mean, it's not it's not monument, it's not Neanderthal. It's fourteenth century. But it's an, it's a beautiful site. It, it looks up and people have have known that it was there and assumed that it was ceremonial or something. But it isn't. It's a it's an it's an agricultural university. I was teaching during during the first lockdown. I did some teaching for for um, children, uh, the children of my colleagues who were busy building ventilators and saving people's lives. And I taught the potato project. And one of the things that I taught them was the Moray Agricultural Station. And the next day when they came back for their lessons, they'd all rebuilt it on Minecraft. That is adorable. <laughs> Isn't that adorable? They, they really went for it. Um, and they built, because actually, I, I don't know a great deal about Minecraft, but it's quite an easy thing to build on Minecraft. But they all went away and clicked up and up come these images of the Moray Agricultural Station that they've built on Minecraft. Um, and they'd also built some Minecraft llamas as well, but um, but it's so if you think of a Minecraft landscape, a fairly basic, uh, it's, it's a whole. I didn't get it in, unfortunately, but um, but if you think of a Minecraft, that's what the Moray Agricultural Station in Peru is. It looks like a Minecraft landscape. Um, I, I, somebody should write a book about I don't know about an Inca agricultural scientist, but, but I mean, what that actually means in terms of the the amount of excess labour, for want of a better word, that there is in that society at that time that you can take someone whose job it is purely to experiment knowing that experiments by their very nature will often fail it says so much about the sophistication of the civilization at that time 
at that time and we and we know very little about it they they didn't have written communication they communicated by uh, knotted colored cords it's truly truly fascinating and we have very few of them because again the spaniards destroyed them so we can't code code them very you know we, it's very they're the ones that we have very difficult to decode but absolutely they had scientists who reported to someone the findings and then presumably disseminated those findings and said to the the Peruvian population, you know, if we ever go to Mars, we're, it's only, we're only taking potatoes. <laughs> and it took us a very long time to catch up with that. Yeah. But, but it, it is, it's truly fascinating. I mean, I, I, I don't want to idealise the Incas. They had, they had some, some fairly unhealthy um, attitudes to human sacrifice. Um, but it's, it, it is a truly extraordinary society. Uh, a truly extraordinary, and, and you know, the holding the line against the horsemen even then, mm. you know, trying to keep their their population, their pop, their potato crop blight free because blight was an issue. It wasn't the same catastrophe that it was, uh, and to keep their population fed and, and to keep their economy circulating. Yeah. Uh, and they had an agricultural research station to do it, as you say, just extraordinary. One of the projects that you've worked on uh, that is accessible to a general audience. It's not necessarily written directly for a general audience is mm -hmm. the paediatric blast injury field manual how does it feel addressing that kind of audience as opposed to a sort of more general reader buy it in waterstones kind of audience absolutely and if you'd like a paediatric blast injury field manual you can go on the website at imperial and download it for free in five languages this was really a combination of the work that i've been doing before i started working on the four horsemen which was looking at the long-term outcomes of blast injury uh, and bioengineering, what we do in particular is, is prosthetic limbs. And uh, the, the, the cohort of young patients who needs prosthetic limbs are generally soldiers. Uh, and I was asked by people who are now colleagues at Save the Children how that plays out with children, because they know that actually globally, the population that suffers most from blast injury is children. And for you, you have children and, and presumably, you know, when you buy shoes for them, that in three months time, they're going to need new shoes. Um, that's exactly the same thing with a prosthetic leg, mm. uh, except if you don't get a new prosthetic leg in three months time, it means you don't go to school and you become and that may lead uh, you to to drop out of school. And so blast injury leads to illiteracy. It's a secondary effect. But um, and I became very interested in this idea of stuff that was pediatric specific. Mm. And and as, as we talked about earlier, this idea that that antimicrobial um, uh, research or finding antibiotics, new antibiotics, has generally not been done for a paediatric cohort. In fact, very little has been done for a paediatric cohort. We tend to look at children as little adults. So we take what we know as adults and we scale it back by 50% and we hope that works. In some cases it works, in some cases it doesn't. The really significant thing, and that's really why we did the manual, is that when a, a medic, a really experienced medic, maybe in a, in a conflict situation who's dealt with adult blast injury, many cases of adult blast injury, it's a whole different kettle of fish when they're presented with a little body on a stretcher that's been blown apart. And quite often, no matter how skilled they are and how much they know, it all falls apart. They talk about an emotional window and you lose control in the operating theatre. Everybody is horrified by this. So we wrote the manual as much as not just to communicate paediatric specific information if you've got a child who's got very significant trauma, um, but also so that someone in that position can go, OK, deep breath and turning to the page on 
the level of pain medication that we can give. I'm turning to the page on where you apply a tourniquet on a small limb. Mm -hmm. And it gives the information in, in a very clear, quick form and hopefully restores their confidence. So they can go back and bring the expertise that they already have to a, the kind of patient they've never treated before. So it was a field manual that hopefully works for patients, but equally well works for the medics that will treat them. And it goes all the way from the point of wounding to discharge from hospital and rehab, which it never does. You can get lots of manuals on paediatric surgery, almost nothing on paediatric pain management. We don't really even know how children experience pain. Mm. Um, on rehab, on the treatment of psychological trauma, we tried to pack it all in, in one nice, colourful ring binder small volume. And, and it's, all, it's, in, it's in use in 13 countries and, and we're very happy about that. Yeah, I think that is a wonderful place to be reinforcing that line. Uh, yes. And the people who are holding the line there with these very young victims of war. Um, the rest of us, when we read this book, will not have anything like that level of contribution. But what do you hope that we as readers will take away and add to, to that line against the horsemen? It's the boring thing. I hope we take away the real value of a great report, of great data analysis, and that we take away a little patience. Mm -hmm. That constant updates on your phone is not going to tell you the important science that we may not, that lies waiting for us 50 years down the line. So I want to tell people to be patient, to read the report, and to understand that the real scientific breakthroughs are often made on paper. Mm. Um, as a downloadable PDF and, and that they, we should all pace ourselves and wait for it to happen. So a bit more length and a bit more depth in our perspective. Absolutely. And just understand that it's never just magic. There is nothing that's ever come along and been magic and then we didn't need to do an outcome study. Mm -hmm. um, there is always, understand that it's magic plus outcome study. Magic plus a lot of training. Um, uh, there's always an outcome study because you get in the habit of saying what's the outcome study mm. and that the most wonderful people in the world are the three and a half thousand children on the Khalifi study that's yes. what I want them to take away thank you so much I could talk to you for literally hours thank you once again to Emily Four Horsemen is a fascinating read and can be found now in all good bookshops in a fortnight, we're talking to Dr. Amy Jeffs and Dr. Mary Wellesley. And while Emily was telling us about PDFs of outcome studies, they'll be talking about something with a bit of a longer view. The manuscripts that we still have that tell us the history of the British Isles. Thank you for listening to Pot. by rating, reviewing and sharing Nonfic Pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 